0: Everyone talks about how great their business is, but the cornerstone to success is having a support system and being able to rely on your spouse or partner. Annette Delancey runs a company called She Makes Products. She Makes Products transforms overwhelmed female entrepreneurs who are struggling with lack of support into profitable businesses and confident CEOs. The foundation for your success is getting the support you need to get the success you want. So start today. Go to www.shemakesproducts.com forward slash promotions. Use the code motorbikemike to get 50% off Supportology, one of Annette's most popular courses for help with support issues. That's www.shemakesproducts.com forward slash promotions. Use the code motorbikemike to get 50% off Supportology don't let lack of support get in the way of your success. Everyone thinks about security for their home or vehicle, but how many think about cybersecurity for their business? Cybersecurity can be daunting and scary. See the headlines every day. The stats are staggering. 88% of organizations worldwide experienced phishing attempts in 2019, and only 5% of companies properly secure and protect their sensitive information. Triada Networks provides cybersecurity and IT services to small businesses in the greater New York City area and investment firms worldwide. Triada Networks has put together an actionable and effective guide to help small business owners protect themselves from a business-killing cybersecurity event. Don't leave yourself vulnerable to the theft of sensitive information or vulnerable to a lawsuit from the theft of personal information. Visit www.smallbizsecurity.com to safeguard your business. That's www.smallbizsecurity.com. The stories we've been told about success,
1: are wrong. So there are two major stories that we've been taught throughout our lives. The first story is that greatness comes from talent. So this is the idea that we all are born with certain innate strengths, right? And that the key to finding your greatness is just finding the right field that allows those strengths to shine. Then there's a second story. It's the Gladwell story, the 10,000 hours practice, 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 eventually, you will get to the highest levels. But there's a third story, and it is particularly relevant to entrepreneurs, and innovators and creative professionals. And that story is reverse engineering. So it, all that means is finding great models and or great examples and then working backward to figure out how they were created.
0: So uh, you know, the juiciest stuff happens right before the record button.
2: I know. I'm sorry. I should hit that baby as soon don't as be sorry, I get on. Don't be sorry, Amy. Don't be <laughs> sorry. Okay. Not sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> Thanks, what's, the most, what's the most uncomfortable thing to say to someone? Like, you're not, fly like, you know, down. like, like, like in a uh, in a conversation where it's appropriate maybe to say something that was very uncomfortable. I'm not saying something inappropriate to
2: say. Your breast is out, or your fly is down.
0: That's, That's the very top uncomfortable. Two. I, yeah. I, you, you went right for the right for the guttural. Yep,
2: very uncomfortable moment.
0: Yeah, I've never had a your breast is out, and, and a guy should never, I think, be in that circumstance. I go, oh, I think you just turn and say, I think you need to fix your wardrobe. <laughs>
3: I feel like it's it's a woman should be even less in that circumstance.
0: No, I, oh, you ever. I've had a breast fall. I, I was at the. Um, I was at the you beach. had a breast fall out. Well, not me. <laughs> okay. And look at me. I think I do have breasts. Look at that. No. Listen, I have a man boob. Ah,
3: <laughs> man boobs.
0: I have a you boob do have breasts. Not- men
3: have breasts.
0: Men, men and men have breasts. Men have.
3: Breasts.
0: Yeah. I was at the beach, and uh, <laughs> I'm just walking, and the woman coming the other way. All of a sudden, her. The key top just popped open and fell on the ground, and I'm like, I instantly, I was like, "Do not look."
2: It's so bad.
0: I can't. I actually, I, I didn't even think that could happen. Like it, it, it like gets spring. Yeah. Um. Oh. So it can happen. So you know, I shouldn't be in that circumstance, but I was. And all I did was I turned, and I was like, "Just do." You not didn't move. have to
2: say anything. I assume. I'm no, no. I think she.
0: She. I didn't. When I returned after about 15 minutes, I slowly turned. Her <laughs> she was nowhere to be found.
3: Oh, so was your point before saying that a man shouldn't be in that position? That's what you're saying to tell a woman that.
0: That's what Amy said. Yeah. You said.
3: But I thought you were saying, like, you know, a man should never be in that position where their their breast pops out. And I was like, I oh, think myself. it's worse for a woman to be in that position. Oh, no, no, no. Oh,
0: <laughs> but you oh, were man. just saying you don't
3: want to be the person to tell the woman that.
0: I don't, don't want per- to. I have think, to think a guy should be in a position where you have to tell the woman. I think you're, you're, yeah. our responsibility is it's the, just
3: the, to turn and pretend it didn't happen. And no,
0: just no, no, not turn look it and say, whoops. Or... Oh,
3: I want people to pretend it didn't happen. <laughs> what I'm are we say? To... It was just like an about face, like you just turned around and started walking the other way? All right, Mike, I'm going to tell you. Should I tell him, Kelsey? <laughs>
0: you, had, you, had to, you had one?
2: I have had so many wardrobe malfunctions. <laughs> really? It is. Oh, my God. All right, ready for this one? You know, I can't you all, why is Kelsey laughing this? like
0: that? Because she She's knows. Like, no,
2: that was... Some of them are so, I'm not going to tell you the worst one. The worst one has to do with a maxi pad. We're not going to talk
0: about that. (laughs) Oh, God. I can imagine.
2: Another bad one, though, however, was me walking down the boulevard. For our listeners who don't know, the boulevard is a a beautiful walking path in this very lovely neighborhood in our neighboring town. Uh, It's a great walkway. It's two miles of just walking, no need to stop. And there's a lot of foot traffic and bike traffic traffic. and car traffic on the road that runs parallel. So um, I went for my walk a couple months ago, and I was wearing my favorite gap underwear, which are lovely little cotton briefs that have a, a cotton bow on the front. But for some reason, it's not just like a sewn bow. It's an actual like ribbon that you tie uh, and
0: it, it serves a functional purpose.
2: Not really. It's okay. decorative, but for some reason yeah. it actually unties and ties. Yeah. So I got dressed and I Put on my zip up shorts and I went out on the boulevard walking. And I got through about two miles and I looked down and the strings to my underwear were stuck outside of my shorts. And I had walked the entire two miles of the one direction with their strings flapping around. The strings flapping around. And that's not I'm obviously telling you this because it's the least of the hard stories of my, yeah of my spastic ways and my wardrobe malfunctions.
0: I've, I've put on underwear on backwards and not noticed. That's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. You got, you got a, You got a developmental issue, a, a <laughs> physical issue. If that happens. And
2: so it's just like halfway through your day. And you're like,
0: yeah, and, and just, so you know, right. I wear G strings. So <laughs> don't really. visualize. So no, but I I've put underwear on backwards. I'm like, Oh, I don't know. But here, this was crazy. It's like two days ago. I'm so in my routine, you know, put my socks on pants. I put, I put my socks on before my pants. I put my socks on, I put my shoes on, and then I grab my pants. I'm like, oh yeah, my
3: God. I've done that before too. I'm
0: like, what am oh, I doing?
3: Wait a minute, guys.
2: Wait a minute. You're looking at your bare legs and you're putting your socks and
3: shoes on and nothing's registering? You know what? Because that's not my normal flow. So like, let's say I'm in a dressing room or something like that. Uh Because normally my shoes are by the door. So I would get fully dressed and then put like my socks and shoes on. So if I'm in this situation where like for whatever reason I put my socks on, I automatically want to put my shoes on, even if I haven't put my pants on. I've done so it. Fun. And then I'm like, oh, my God. Who am I? Oh, I'm like an animal. Just I just caused myself.
2: I have to say, this one is surprising me. I have never done that. And You've if anybody's going to do that, it's going to be me. And it You know, here, me. here's
0: what's funny when that moment happens. I'm sure, Kelsey, for you, too. There's like a millisecond. It's like, should I just go out like this?
3: <laughs> oh, no. Mine is like, can <laughs> I get my pants over my shoes? Oh, yeah. Or, that, that's, or that, that's the I... alternative, right? Oh, my...
0: Yeah, because you don't want to redo all this work. Yeah,
3: so much work and time. <laughs>
0: So oh, I'll funny. tell you, if there's anyone that needs this upcoming episode of Decoding Greatness, it's us. <laughs> Obviously, uh, yeah, <laughs> we can't we can't even dress ourselves. So I interview Ron Friedman, and well, there's some interesting insights because he argues some of the kind of classic um, definitions of greatness, ten thousand hours, and so forth, may actually not be the pathway to greatness. So listen on in. What?
1: How do you define greatness? Greatness is defined by top performance in your field and it really is a matter of taste. So it's not just to say objective you know this person is the definition of greatness and therefore we should all strive to be like that person because it's a moving target. Uh, we're gonna you know uh, uh, industries are evolving and personal taste counts for more than anything any any time before because what you consider to be great is going to be likely more authentic to you. And so if you're uh, looking to strive for greatness and modeling after people who you consider to be top performers, that likely is going to work better for you than just, you know, what everybody else considers great.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Is it about modeling? Do do we look at our peers, the people who have come before us to emulate? Is that the idea? So, yeah, let's take a
1: step back. So the big idea for this book, Decoding Greatness, is that the stories we've been told about success are wrong. So there are two major stories that we've been taught throughout our lives. The first story is that greatness comes from talent. So this is the idea that we all are born with certain innate strengths right. and that the key to finding your greatness is just finding the right field that allows those strengths to shine. Then there's a right. second story. It's the Gladwell story, the 10,000 hours. Practice, 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 eventually you will get to the highest levels. But there's right. a third story and it is particularly relevant to entrepreneurs and innovators and creative professionals. And that story is Reverse engineering. So it, all that means is finding great models and or great examples, and then working backward to figure out how they were created. And you know, in Silicon Valley, there's a long history of reverse engineering being the path through which um, major products are, are are introduced. It's how we got the laptop. It's how we got the personal computer. It's how we got the mouse. But it also explains reverse engineering. Also explains how writers like Malcolm Gladwell and Stephen King learned to write and how painters like Claude Monet became extraordinary uh, artists and how comedy legends like Judd Apatow learned to be funny. It was through reverse engineering other comedians. And you know, when I tell people I was writing this book, Creative professionals who are, you know, I, I work with a lot of folks who, who are in the industry. Invariably, the reaction I would get is, man, I've been doing that all my life and I've never read a book about it. No one's ever taught me how to do it. I just kind of stumbled it on my own. And I was kind of, you know, I, I, same for me. It's how, it's how I got my first book deal. It's how I got into the Harvard Business Review. It's how I got my first client. It was through reverse engineering, other examples. And so this is a tool that we all need in order to learn faster.
0: So... I I can't wait to explore that. But I'm curious about the 10,000 hours, uh, practice makes perfect. I mean, uh, it's part of our vernacular. Are we conflating what works maybe for athletes into other applications? Is is there a place where the 10,000 hours or the talent does apply? Yeah. So I love
1: that question. You're very insightful for having picked up on this. So that distinction between athletes and knowledge workers, right? There's a difference there. And there's a real challenge with practicing as the path to greatness, because if you're focused on 10,000 hours and there's a whole other discussion we can have about how that really doesn't, the the number of hours doesn't matter. It's the quality of the practice that matters. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but, but if you're, if you're going down that path of, of practicing something for 10,000 hours, chances are your field will have evolved before you're halfway there or even a quarter of the way there. And in many cases, that... That 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 skill you were looking to build has become obsolete. And so that is a myth. And uh I truly believe that the way to elevating your skills and accelerating your success is to stay on top of the latest innovations and to consistently be learning. There's another argument for why learning this way is so critical, and it is because it's an antidote to burnout. So, you know, we're all burnt out right now after COVID. Right. Uh and One of the solutions that we all have embraced, I think by default is we we need to work less. And that's an appealing notion. But here's what happens when you aim to work less, is you try to stuff more work into less time and you actually increase your stress level. Learning is a natural antidote to burnout because when you learn, you raise your confidence, you are fulfilling your psychological need for growth, and um, you're building new skills which enables you to actually be more successful in less time. And so I think that this path to learning is crucial and reverse engineering is the way to learn faster from the best in your field.
0: Yeah. It sounds like classic leveraging, right? Get leverage. Um, I'm just curious about your curiosity. Like what inspired you Ron to, to study and research this? Well, my first book was called The Best Place
1: to Work, and uh, in it, I took over a thousand academic studies and I translated them into plain English so that regardless if you're a CEO or if you are just someone starting out, you had access to the latest science of how to elevate your performance and how to create a great workplace. But there was something missing in that book, and what was missing is that even within the best workplaces, there's a range of performance levels. Some people are top performers, other people are not. And I was curious about what it is that differentiates folks, and so initially, I was thinking about writing about all the different ways that top performers do things differently. And I this was the first chapter I submitted it to my editor. And my editor says, wow, this is a book. <laughs> you need to stop the rest of it right now and just focus on this. And what I did for the rest of the book was not just talk about reverse engineering, but show you examples of how it's done in photography, how it's done in cooking, how it's done for entrepreneurs. And then I show you how to do it yourself by showing you how to take apart TED Talks, showing you how to take apart websites, showing you how to evolve the formula. And then the second half of the book is about shrinking the gap between your vision and your ability because just because you know what you're trying to produce doesn't mean you're going to be good at it, right? We've all tried it. Just because you know that Gladwell's a great writer doesn't mean you can write like Gladwell. So the second half of the book is about how, how do you apply psychological principles to learn skills faster.
0: Okay, so uh, so I want to start going through these techniques. So, yeah, let's talk about the reverse engineering. It sounds like you you start the end in mind. That's the definition of reverse engineering, correct? So
1: that's one approach. So this start with the end of mind I think is is so for yourself, for example, thinking about where do I want to go and then working backward. That, that's one approach. But I'm talking about it a little bit differently, which is to take outstanding examples and then identify what they're doing differently. So, to make this concrete, if I want to reverse engineer, Mike McAlarwix. Yeah. Okay. You ready for this? I'm sorry to hear that by the way. (laughs) (laughs) So I might take fix this next and I might look at the table of contents and think about, okay, what is he doing here? What's he doing in chapter one? What's he doing in chapter two? And then how would I apply that to something completely different? Let's say I want to write a book about networking. So what's the progression here, chapter one, chapter two, and how do I apply this to the thing I'm, I'm good at? And so it's about taking formulas being analytical about what's happening here and then templatizing them right so it's kind of the way i talk mm. about it it's collect great examples analyze them and templatize them now that's not enough because if i just go into market with mike mcallowick's formula chances are my audience is not going to respond to it as well as mike mcallowick's audience did and it's because right. mike has some um, some amazing strengths that i don't have okay he's got a great beard for example <laughs> <laughs> But you've got a knack for for making things very practical. Maybe maybe that's not my thing. So I I might not be as successful at at doing that. And so the crucial thing is to find the right model, but also to evolve the formula in a way that makes it feel fresh. Because if you're just copying someone else's formula, you're not going to be successful because, A, you don't have the particular skills that initial person did, but, B, because audience expectations have evolved, right? So the moment... Uh, I talk about this in the book about Twilight. Remember that book, Twilight? When it came out, it was a smash success, and all of a sudden, the market was flooded with teenage books about vampires. Yeah, and they all failed spectacularly. And it wasn't because they were all terrible books; it was because people now understood what the formula was, and they weren't interested anymore. So you've got to take the formula and you've got to evolve it. So who, how you evolve Twilight? Well, Abraham Lincoln apparently was a vampire. That was oh that right, right, it. yeah, and that was hugely successful. So that's the thing: success. is find a formula, evolve it. That's the path to succeeding faster. And I'll, I'll just add to that is yeah. that a lot of times people think that I need to be completely original in order to break through. But you know what? Originality backfires. People don't want original. And it's because as a species, we have evolved to distrust the new. We like the, we like something that mm-hmm. reminds us of something that we've enjoyed in the past with a slight variation. And there's research on this. There's research looking at what studies get funded by the NIH. And it turns out it's not the studies that are completely new. It's the studies that are just evolve very slightly on something that's already been done before. That's more likely to succeed. We see this in products all the time. Look at the Apple Watch. The Apple Watch is fantastic. I love it. Uh, it came out 20 years ago by Seiko. Had you heard of the Seiko smartwatch? I didn't. Nobody did. And it's because audiences weren't ready for it. And it was rejected. But it took 20 years for us to get to a place where now we like this idea of a smartwatch.
0: Yeah, you hear this, like things are out before it's time and it sounds like it's not a natural evolution. I was just reading a book, I think it's called um, The Ri- The Superpowers in AI or something. Okay. But it was, a, it was research into China's uh, investment into AI. It, and what this author argued was the culture in China, and I wonder if this speaks to you, Ron, is he said that in China, duplicating things is part of the culture. So he goes, Go back thousands of years ago, uh, hundreds of years ago, the European clockmakers would come to the uh, the aristocrats of China and say, look, at, here's this clock we delivered to you, and they would tear it apart and reassemble it. But then China has moved now. It's not just reassembling what's already being made. Now it's doing those variants on it, enhancing it. Interesting. And uh, his argument is because of that culture, because it's actually expected to reverse engineer, duplicate, and improve, that China is is light years ahead of everyone else uh, as a superpower.
1: It sounds like a book I should read. uh, And I'd love to get the details from you after the show. But I I will tell you that one of the reasons I think that this has gone out under the radar for so long, why creative professionals have to kind of like pretend they're not doing this, but they do this and they don't tell anybody is because we have been trained to believe that copying is wrong. That's why I was going to ask you. Yeah. So it's our culture. All right. So I am not advocating for let's go take Mike Michalowicz's uh, formula and create a thousand books like them. What I am suggesting is that even if you do that, you're not going to be successful. However, there's value in copying that privately and seeing what you learn. And here's what I mean by that. There's research showing that copying makes you more creative. And let me give oh, you the Interesting, tell me about this. Yeah. So this is a research study out of the University of Tokyo. Creative uh, uh experts did this study where they brought people into the lab and over the course of 3 yeah. days, they divided them into two groups. Over the course of 3 days, they were asked to create original paintings, okay? Uh, the first group just did th- three days in a row of original paintings. The second group, however, on the second day, they were asked to pause and to copy the work of an established artist. And then what the, the, the uh, dependent variable was, what they were measuring, was comparing group one, which had just done original work, against group two, which had paused to copy, on the third day. Who was most creative on the third day? And what they found was that the second group, the group that had copied the established artist, blew the first group out of the water. And it wasn't by mimicking the work that they had copied on the second day. They went off in completely new directions. So the question is, why? Why does copying make you more creative? It's because by comparing your instincts against the decisions of a master, that forces you to compare what you would have done versus what, what they would have done, and it mm. opens your eyes up to fresh possibilities that you wouldn't have considered. So the last thing in the world that you want when you're trying to produce creative work is to lock yourself in a room, turn off the lights, and try to be creative. Creativity comes from blending ideas, and we get that by studying the works of the masters.
0: I love that, this this rapid rapid uh, acclimation to new knowledge by, by uh, copying others. Um, but you know the other thing is like in school and stuff, there was this kind of this bipolar mentality at least in my opinion, is that you were expected to copy you know and to answer specifically uh, the the multiple choice in a certain way just by copying the knowledge you gained. But the second you wrote something that someone else wrote, you were called a copyright infringement or or you were plagiarizing and, and it seems almost bipolar. It seems either you're copying or you're not. How do you when it comes to delivering our offering to, our clients in the entrepreneurial community. How do we walk the line of copying, um, to enhance what we deliver, but, but also don't infringe on law or, or plagiarism or any of that stuff?
1: Yeah. So I've actually, it's funny. I've been, um, I've had this experience where someone had a very successful website for uh, peak performance summit and someone took it, copied all the colors, Copied all the buttons, just like changed the speakers. It was like literally the same page. So I've I've experienced this. And what I I find troubling about that example is that they weren't adding anything. They were just replacing them with me and selling it. Right. Here, what we're talking about is something completely different. And that is using reverse engineering to elevate our learnings so that we can apply it in a new way. So If I were them, what I would have done is looked at my website and say, okay, what's he doing in panel number one? What's he doing in panel number two? What's he doing in panel number three? And how do we apply that to our value proposition?" So was that other summit as successful as mine? No, it wasn't close. And it was, again, because if you copy somebody else's formula, you're going to fall flat. The key is to combine different formulas and sometimes even going outside your field and finding things that are new. And just it's all about being sensitive to the elements that you find impactful and then combining them in new ways. And I'll give you an example just to make this concrete. Barack Obama. In uh, Decoding Greatness, I tell his story. So when he first entered politics, he was not a great speaker. In fact, he got trounced his first race for office for Congress. He lost by a margin of more than two to one. Mm. And the problem, if you could believe it, was that he was a terrible speaker. Mm. He was used to lecturing students as a law school professor, and voters didn't like to be lectured to, and they let him know at the ballot box. So for a while, he thought about leaving politics until he realized what it was that pastors were doing in church when they were engaging their audiences. All of a sudden, he comes back the next race. Now he's he's doing storytelling. He's using repetition. He's quoting the Bible. He's modulating his tone. He's slowing down in certain phases. And that approach launched him to becoming the, the speaker that we now know today and eventually becoming president. And what I love about that story is that it illustrates that Barack Obama didn't go find his talent he didn't practice for ten thousand hours right he found what was working in a different field and he incorporated it into his own and we can all use that approach and the other thing that i love about that that story is that it gives you license to just enjoy your guilty pleasure like if you enjoy japanese films or you know if you enjoy um you know listen watching TikToks, that's okay as long as you have that mindset of like what am i learning from this okay. how do i apply this to my thing
0: i love that i love that story I'm curious, as a small business owner, that's a majority of our listeners, um, they want to compete more, uh, better, they want to grow their business, but uh, there's so many things, where do I get started? The first step is to become a
1: collector, okay? So when people think Uh, of collections, they think physical objects. They think, uh, I'm going to collect stamps, I'm going to collect artwork, wine. That definition is far too narrow. Designers collect logos, Writers collect great words. Uh, uh, presenters collect presentation decks. And it's by having that collection, you could start this by, by you know, just simply bookmarking it, creating a Google Doc, Evernote, however it is that you like to collect. What you want to have is that collection of things that you can go to the next time it's time for you to create so that you're not starting from a blank page. The other thing it does is it allows you to compare the ordinary against the extraordinary. So what's in your collection versus what didn't make the cut. Be sensitive to what's differentiating those factors because it's in identifying those ingredients that you come across, okay, this is what makes things successful for me. I could tell you, I'm a writer. Uh so what I've, I I collect is are words that I feel like they, they got my attention, openings for stories that I think are interesting, conclusions, transitions. I don't know, Mike, if you do the same, but uh, it's very helpful to do this because. When it's time for you to write your story you could at least look at that for inspiration and come up with different ideas that you would have than if you were looking at just a blank page
0: yeah i totally do i actually have been reading uh books by comedians because so fascinating to, about those are great storytellers typically and they they can make you laugh out loud from a piece of paper so i was like how do they do this and i've taken jokes to your point i'm reverse engineer i didn't even realize it i i don't copy the jokes but i'm like oh that matched up with this. Yeah. actually works with what I'm doing. Um, so it's like that, a puzzle. Which,
1: piece. which of those? Uh, wait, I, I love comedians. There's a lot of comedians in my book. To, which uh, which books do you recommend?
0: Yeah. So Jeff uh, Jeff Gaffigan, uh, Jim Gaffigan, all okay. his work. Uh you, you know his the one his I can't remember the most recent one. The um, I got a fat dad or something like. Some of his kids said. <laughs> I also read Bossy Pants by Tina Fey. Yeah, awesome book. And to me that I also study book covers. So I have hundreds of book covers. To me, that's one of the best book covers of all time is Bossy Pants, because there was an author presenting themselves, but in a way that's so funny. I don't, you know, she has these big man arms.
1: It's okay. There's something, I remember there was something weird about her arms. Okay. Yeah.
0: So you see, you know, (laughs) I think she's a very attractive uh, face and then you see this big man arms. It's a hysterical (laughs) kind of uh, juxtaposition. Yeah. So in my small business, once I start collecting stuff, should I kind of test out this reverse engineering with something small and simple, or should I go big right from the get go? So one of the strategies I talk about
1: in the book is how entrepreneurs and businesses reduce the risk and risk taking. Okay, so we're often told, hey, go big. You need to, you know, find your courage and try something. (laughs) Otherwise, you're not going to succeed. But successful businesses do the opposite. And how do they do it? By finding small test audiences, right? So there's the classic story of Chris Rock. I talk about Aziz Ansari in my book where I had this experience. I was at the comedy seller. He shows up uh, out of nowhere with a list of jokes. He literally has a sheet of paper and he's like marking off the ones that are working, ones that are not working. Two years later, I find all those same jokes in his book, Modern Romance. And that's what he was doing. He was using a small test audience because if he fails with a hundred people in the audience, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Next night, right? But that's what they do. But They don't test their materials out on, on when They go on a Netflix special, they do it in the tiny clubs. And as a business owner, you could do the same exact thing. And how do you do it? It's by testing a potential offering with just a handful of clients before you launch it on your website. Talk to just a few clients, see what the feedback is, and you'll be able to iterate. And once you have something big, that's when you go and you put it on your website. The other thing you could do if you're an entrepreneur is create a waiting list on your website and see what happens. How many people are registering for this thing, right? So you can launch the program without launching the program. And I talk about this as sell first, build later. Don't mm. bother building, wasting mm. a year of your time, perfecting something that nobody wants. It does you no good. What you want to do is you want to get feedback as quickly as possible with the least amount of effort.
0: As someone starts achieving greatness, you know, the, the community that surrounds them starts pulling them down. Like, who are you to think so big? How do you handle that social pressure? Oh, that's really interesting.
1: Uh, so th- what I would say to that is that um, your friends are going to evolve over time, and that's completely natural. And you want to be strategic about who you're spending time with. Mm. Because, you know, we talk about you're the, you're the, the average of the five people you spend time right. with. Uh, you know, I think that we need to think about that when it comes to creative ideas. So if you're the average of the five per- people that you are uh, hang out with the most of your life, same is true for the level of your thinking, the ideas you're considering. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is research on how entrepreneurs network versus how managers network. And there's a crucial difference is that managers or people within organizations, what they tend to do is they tend to network for the sake of connections and for trying to move their career ahead. Entrepreneurs do it a little bit differently where they network for ideas. And so that mindset shift of meeting people for good ideas is, I think, super liberating because now you don't have that pressure on yourself, like to collect business cards or to try to make a sale. Now you're just trying to meet some interesting people and gather some great ideas. And that shift in mindset makes networking a lot more bearable,
0: I think, for a lot of folks. Mm. Dr. Ron Friedman, uh, Friedman, your book, uh, Decoding Greatness, is available where? It is available at Amazon and
1: all the major bookstores. You can also find uh, if you if you'd like a free course on how to reverse engineer, you can get that once you get the book. So decodinggreatnessbook.com. Check out that website. You'll get the course and tons of other bonuses. All you have to do is buy a book.
0: Ron, this has been a fascinating conversation. I just a lot of ideas that 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 are really in the spit in the face of what we've been hearing. Um, I love this. Thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, I thought I thought it was fascinating that um, he argued against uh, the ten thousand hours concept, meaning just work at. It. He argued against talent that you're born with something, and it's really this um, reverse engineering was the term he used most frequently. Decoding, hence the title. Um, the, what other people do that's successful, it's really kind of applying smarts as opposed to raw effort, and I, I thought that was a fascinating way to achieve.
2: I thought this was so interesting. I love the idea that creativity creativity comes from blending ideas.
0: creativity. Cavities. Cavities and so you got,
2: you got, cavities. Creativity comes from blending ideas and knowledge by studying the masters. And um and that the study um that copying. Um, that study that he talked about, that copying made people more creative because by comparing your instincts versus a master's opens your eyes to fresh possibilities. It's very eye-opening and very, um, for me, it was very um, assuring, like, Mm -hmm. oh, there's potential and possibility in learning and how learning is actually the antidote to uh, burnout, which was really interesting
3: too. Yeah, I loved all that. I wrote all that down. So thanks for saying all the points, Amy. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry. But no, sorry. I agree 100%. And I I, I often think that nothing is really unique and it's all open source, right? Like everything in the world is is something that we've seen or heard or done before. So anything that we create is influenced by those things. And I, I love that it's, you know, he says it's okay to copy. We're trained to think that it's not okay, but we do it all the time. And I like putting it in this framework of it's actually good for you. So, you know, to just take something that you really want and then improve and evolve it to make it better and make it yours.
0: And I think he supported that argument too with that people don't trust something that's brand new, Mm -hmm. radically different. That that we want to see improved and new as opposed to just new. Yeah, because then we have a, a something to. To base our trust in
2: yeah.
0: and his enhancement. So I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. I also thought just reflecting after the interview, I was like, oh my gosh, school gets bastardized, not bastardized, school gets beat up a lot nowadays. Like, oh, who needs college? Who needs anything? And I'm I'm one of them. Like, I don't know if there's any value. But there is the value of learning how to copy process. Like that's what we're told. Yeah. Memorize this, do this routine. And his argument, as I listened to, is like, oh, this actually supports school and 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 that rote knowledge actually is a learning process because it, it gives us that springboard to build the new parts to something that's already established
2: yeah
3: i think that's a good point
0: yeah you i right also right? really
3: yeah. love the title I
2: like you don't
0: it. like decoding greatness as a title i love it oh
3: it's like so straightforward exactly but it you know it's it's nice yeah
0: yeah i wish i wish you didn't have that title because i want it for us yeah <laughs> dang it can we, co- well, he said, okay. copying.
3: why didn't we do that?
0: <laughs> well, I, my, our new book is decoding greatness better. better.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Game for us. Game. I, I have a little trivia for us. Thanks for
0: doing these trivias. I think oh, you did my a great pleasure. job last week.
2: Thank you. Okay. So this one, can you guess it's, you're not going to guess. Hold oh, no, on. Let
0: I, me, let me think. For a second. Thank you. Is it about clothing mishaps?
3: No. Is it about painting? No, thanks art. I went with engineering. Of course. Which is sort
2: of, you know, yeah. Related because he reverse yeah. engineering. You reverse uh, engineering. Yeah, okay. Uh all right. So the word engineer comes from a Latin word meaning structure, cleverness, mm. or to move forward. Mm. Okay. okay. Uh The largest engineering feat in Ferris wheels is the London Eye in England, the High Roller in Las Vegas, Nevada, or the Eye in Dubai in Dubai. And last but not least, the Great Pyramid of Giza was originally another color due to an outer casting that once existed. What was that color? Uh, White? Green or black?
0: Mm. Got right. all my answers. Got them. Okay. You know what I liked about this trivia Why? was when you were by answer or option two for each one, I was like, oh, I know it now. And then you throw out option three. It's like, oh, hold on. <laughs> oh, hold on.
2: <laughs> these, are really
0: well, these are good, good uh, responses that you have for options.
2: Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so the word engineer comes from a Latin word meaning structure, cleverness, or move forward. Cleverness. It's in move forward. Cleverness is correct, Michael Michalowicz. Did you know that? No. Really? No, but I'm, a
0: I'm looking for Amy's towels. That lazy eye started drifting.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs>
0: I was like, it's
2: uh, all right number two the largest engineering feat in ferris wheels is is it the london eye in england the high roller in las vegas or
3: the eye in dubai said i in dubai
0: i went to dubai but you when you said the high roller it's like oh yeah that's big that, that may be it and then that's this is the one one it's like i it's the high roller and you introduce the third and dubai they're so is ostentatious the right word yes words.
2: exactly yeah Oh so my like, it's yeah. gotta be
0: dubai you are both correct.
2: It yeah. is Dubai. Uh, the London Eye is 442 feet. The high roller 550 feet, but
0: the Ein is 820 feet. 800 feet. Like there's a certain point it's no longer a Ferris wheel. It's yeah. just It's a, a two-hour
2: ride up, I think, basically, before they can get <laughs> exactly. you back down again. That's crazy. No, thank you. And can you imagine stopping for everybody yeah. to come
3: back
0: up? You're oh on for like yeah. 10 hours. Yeah, exactly. So we're gonna do today. Go one loop on the Ferris wheel. <laughs>
3: You imagine that's if it's exactly. a date and you want to get off? Yeah, exactly.
2: Oh, God. could you imagine? No. Like, oh, this idea. is the
0: worst date. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what you do with a date. You're like, what do you want to do? Let's do the Ferris wheel. <laughs> yeah. Because you know you're in and out in like three minutes. Yeah, exactly. And you're exactly. like, oh my God. Oh. No. Oh my God, this person.
2: Bad call on that one. Oh, Very yeah. bad call.
0: Never bring a date to Dubai. That no. is your lesson today. <laughs> that's
2: the key. All right, guys. Uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza was originally another color due to an outer casting that once existed what was that color was it white green or black Schwarz. Dead white Schwarz. black it was white the coating was originally made of limestone well done kelsey airs well thank done. thank you
0: how many did you get on that two me too we tied dude
2: all right all right
0: well the next week we'll try to do the uh the tiebreaker sounds good Talk about next week. Ray Titus is joining. He owns United Franchise Group. So make sure you join in for that. You also want to know what you thought about this interview with Ron Friedman. If you would, go to rateourpodcast.com. I'd love to see your comments about it. And I invite you to subscribe. If you haven't yet, subscribe right now. Any questions you have for me, you can email me at askmike, Mike I'll answer them live on the show. And uh, if you are not on YouTube yet watching these videos, or even if you are, make sure you subscribe is uh, I think you'll see some fun behind-the-scenes stuff, including a lazy eye. Just saying. <laughs> Damn it. Thanks for joining us. See you guys. See you. good times. Good times.